Today we are going to be looking at um, the church again, and uh, I believe it's our the sixth in the series, and uh, we will continue looking at the Acts. So if you can turn with me to Acts chapter 2, we've been talking about the church as not the corporate coming together of what man has uh, decided on, but as predicated on the the presence of the Holy Spirit, the work of the Holy Spirit. We said that the church is really a group of people that are following what the Holy Spirit is doing as best as we can. Not perfectly, but if you can think about us as a sort of a a ring of people around the Holy Spirit. Really, if the Holy Spirit doesn't do anything, there's nothing much we can do. If the Holy Spirit is silent, then we also need to be silent. We shouldn't be speaking when the Holy Spirit is not speaking. Um, Human beings... Uh, I have, have this way of being very gung-ho and very can-do, and we, we can do church. And so we take all the things that we learn about scripture, from Scripture and all the books that we've read, and we think about making a church. But actually, the church is nothing if the Holy Spirit is not present or the Holy Spirit is not doing anything. And so we spoke about the Holy Spirit as the predicate, right? The essential first thing that must happen before we do anything. And uh, if you really believe that, then the Holy Spirit who is moving and church that is following Him is just following. So we are doing the second thing, right? We're never doing the first thing. We're not, never initiating anything. Yeah, We're not initiating. The Holy Spirit has to ho- initiate something. If we don't hear it, the Holy Spirit may be saying, saying something and doing something. And, but if we don't hear it, we, 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 we are not able to move. We're not able to move. And so we're talking about the Holy Spirit and the church as not something that's timeless, but it's timely. We are following in His footsteps. And so we've been talking about that. So as we looked at Acts chapter 1 and Acts chapter 2, we saw a Holy Spirit moment. The Holy Spirit, um, um, almost an explosion that initiated, or that, um, that uh, birthed the church. So let's have a look at this. Uh, we'll read chapter 2 and, and a few verses on that. And we will explore that more. And when the day of Pentecost had come, they were all together in one place. And suddenly, from heaven, there came a sound like the rush of a violent wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. The Holy Spirit's wind is sudden. It is abrupt. It doesn't start from anything that we've been we've been we've been preparing on our side. Not something. It's not something that we can actually uh, devise. It has to be from the other side. It cannot come from our side. The Holy Spirit is a suddenly. The church is a suddenly. If it's not a suddenly, it's too predictable. It is too boring. It it is orientated towards what human beings do. But what's special about the church? Is not anything that we can do, no matter how talented, no matter how gifted we are, no matter how brilliant we are. It's what's special about the church is not the boring brilliance of ourselves or the sunny selfishness of, of human beings wanting to take care of their own self, but it's the suddenness of the Holy Spirit and suddenly something happened. If that suddenly didn't happen, there was no church. You can call yourself church, you can call yourself Baptist or Charismatic or Anglican or whatever, but there's no church. If the Holy Spirit isn't present, is not moving, there is none. We are absolutely done for. And so, suddenly, from heaven there came a sound like the rush of a violent wind, like the sound of um, travail, and it filled the entire house. Divided tongues of fire, as of fire, appeared among them, and a tongue rested on each of them. And we spoke about that resting of this tongue. It's not a tongue, it's not fire exactly, it's something like it. But it's a mystery. It's something of God. And, I, and it rested on every individual person. And it rested on each of them. They were gathered together as a bunch, 120 of them. But the tongues of fire, or what seem to be like tongues of fire, they're more than tongues. They're more than ignition. They are the Holy Spirit coming individually and severally upon each person. Yeah? And, every, and, and a tongue rested on each of them. So in, each in his own individual way, I experienced the Holy Spirit in that intensity. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other languages as the Spirit gave them ability. Now there were devout Jews from every nation under heaven living in Jerusalem. And at this sound, the crowd gathered and was bewildered 
Because each one heard them speaking in the native language of each of, each of them. So they are Jews. They are part of what we call the di- di- diaspora or diaspora. They are Jews who actually speak other languages because they have been acculturated uh, into, the, into, the, into the societies that they have been dispersed to. This probably happened at various uh, times, AD 70, AD 35, and perhaps when... Um, uh, during the Roman times as well. But they were Jews, they were following the Jewish tradition, but they were actually culturally uh, international, right? So they didn't speak Hebrew so much or Aramaic so much as their native tongues, the tongues of the countries that they were, they were um, dispersed to. Amazed and astonished, they asked, are not these who are speaking Galileans? Galileans were people who were considered lowbrow, really lowbrow. They had a broad accent. When uh, someone said, you're a Galilean, or when the, you know, it says later in Acts, that they, they, they took notice that they had been with, the, with Jesus of Nazareth, the Galilean, what they're saying is this, oh, they have that kind of lowbrow accent, just like Jesus. That's, that's humbling. They noticed that they were Galileans. Noticed that that the depths of society. I, you know, when I was uh, <laughs> studying literature in, in high school in Malaysia, I heard this, this phrase: "An Oki from Miskoki." Me, a Malaysian, learn, learning a, a phrase like that: "An Oki from Miskoki." Something like that. Yeah, something like that. And they are, the, are not all these. Speaking Galilean, they're not cosmopolitan. And how is it that we hear each one of us in our own native language? Parthians, Medes, Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Judea, sorry, Cappadocia, uh, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia, uh, Pamphylia, Egypt, and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene, and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabs. And in our own languages, we hear them speaking about God's deeds of power. And all were amazed and perplexed. They were amazed and perplexed. Holy Spirit came upon these people and these people started speaking in other tongues. But these were not heavenly languages. These were languages that people from different countries in the world or or different nations in this world were actually able to identify. They were speaking the, the heart language. Actually, maybe the word languages is not a, that good a translation. It's more dialect. It's dialect. It's like home, home language. It's the home language of these people, the language of the heart of these people. And what, was, what we were saying is this. The church was predicated upon a whoosh of the Holy Spirit. Uh, and you can't, you can't fake it. You can't, you, can't, um, 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 you can't fake it. You can't try to do a similitude of it. It has to be either that, that miraculous, is downright miraculous, downright sudden, downright of heaven, not um, um, uh, uh, made up or faked or, 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 or um, I'm, I'm looking for the, for the word. Uh, in Malaysia, we have a lot of uh, fake um, Gucci watches. What, what do you call that? Um, yes, right, whatever. In our own languages, and it's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a downright Holy Spirit thing. The church is nothing for all its communication, of all its communication savvy, for all its media, it's all its, for all its coolness. It is nothing if it is not a suddenly. But when the Holy Spirit came upon them, they were able to hear the hopes, the longings, and the resonances, the deep resonances of their own heart. Not in contemporary language, but in the deep, ancient, old longings and desires that went deeper than their present contemporary desire to be famous or to be wonderful or great or whatever, or, or, fa- or, 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 or rich or whatever. It, it, it was a communication from the Holy Spirit that could not have been scripted by us. It could not have been made up in Madison Madison Square. It could not have been done by any kind of consultancy, communication consultancy in the church. It could not be scripted. It could not be 
um, it could not be addressed to people based upon surveys that the church does to see what people's felt needs are or what people, what people need or desire or can relate to. It doesn't come from any relevance training. It didn't come from any of that. It was a downright Holy Spirit movement, moment. If it's not that, then it's not church. If it's not that, it's not church. If you're not following that, then you're following something that is a, 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 an approximation of church, but not church. And so, in our languages, we hear them speaking of God's deeds and power. And you know what? It made them feel amazed, perplexed, disturbed. No. Comfortable. It wasn't the kind of language that Christians they try to fabricate by thinking of all the things that non-Christians. Hi, Eric. Okay. Sorry about that. Barrier issue. I could use that if you okay. Okay, sure, sure. So sorry. No, no problem. What were we talking about? Yes. I was about to say something profound, but I forgot what it was. <laughs> it was not fabricated, right? It could not be fabricated. It had to be something that the Holy Spirit did. And when the Holy Spirit came. He did exactly that. He spoke to not the contemporary uh, tastes of the, of the day, the, the flavor of the age that was needed, but he spoke to ancient things. Let's, let's read this. All were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? What does this mean? And then we will go into that, but Peter addresses the crowd and speaks about the hopes that had been there for hundreds of years, the hopes for the Holy Spirit to come, the hopes for the end of the age. These are hopes that were not the current contemporary hopes of that day. They, were, they went much deeper. They were not current. They were deeper than current. They were long-standing. They had been put there, desires that had been put there by God perhaps even before people were born. But they're historical as well. It's the hopes of Israel. It's hopes of Judah. It was hope of Jerusalem. It's hopes for every Jew. But every, and it was hopes for every human being. Because the Holy Spirit alone could actually touch that part. Not just what was our perception of what's relevant. It was not a certain... It was not clothed in any contemporary form of things. It was just straight out Holy Spirit speaking in the language that everybody needed. It's the truth that makes us free, not the message. It's not the communication that makes us free. No matter how relieving you are, no how, how, how uh, comforting you are, it is the truth. The truth has to do with the the actual, actual thing. And when, when the Bible speaks about truth, it doesn't mean true statements, things that are factual, things that, that, that can be verified. It, when, when the Bible speaks about truth, it talks about the solid, uh, the, in, in Latin, the solida veritas, the, the actual thing, the actual God, the God of gods, the actual godness of God, the actual thing of God, the actual miracle of God, the actual thing of God. Yeah, And so what happened was that the Holy Spirit came and he rested upon each one of us. And so you have, to, you have to ask the question, why does the church today not experience that? Last week we spoke about the Holy Spirit as the resting upon us and how resting upon us meant that we feel the weight of him. That the Holy Spirit is not just some kind of airy-fairy thing that we can, that's an option, but he begins to make his presence felt. Yeah? And so I want to just look at that when we look at um, the passage that we were looking at last week, and actually we're going to look at Second Samuel chapter 6. If you can please turn with me to Second Samuel chapter 6. 6. 
Um, if you don't have your Bible, it's okay. It's, it's going to be up there. And we spoke about the fact that when the Holy Spirit rests upon us, it presses, He presses down upon us and makes His presence not something that's just an experience, not just a feeling, not just an emotion, but something that is ground into us. Because see, God does not just want to give us experiences that are kind of whoop de doo about God, but He wants to grind His character and His nature, His power, His love into us so that we are, uh, we are, we are, we are one with Him. Right? And so the weight of His resting upon us is something that's worth for us to look, look at. So anyway, here's David, King David, in chapter 6 of Second, uh, Second Samuel. David gathered all the chosen men of Israel. He wanted to bring the presence of the Lord symbolized in the Ark of the Covenant, right? More than symbolizes the Ark of the Covenant was the locus, the, 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 the terminus of, of, of where the presence of God was. And they, he wanted to bring the Ark of the Covenant back to Jerusalem, right? And uh, 70 years, the Ark of the Covenant had been shunted to one side in the house of Abinadab and his two sons, Ahio and Uzzah. Nothing happened there. It was a wilderness of 70 years of nothing really happening of the presence of God in Israel. Israel had forgotten the presence of God, but not David. David, from the time he, be, he, he began to be called by God, wanted long for the presence of God back in Jerusalem because he understood that without the presence of God, Israel was nothing. It's nothing. There was no meaning to, any, to anything. And so he longed for that. And the day came for him to consult with his, uh, his chief guys and they decided, yes, let's take the, the presence of God. We need the presence of God back. And so they carried the ark. But this is how they did it. Verse 3. They carried the ark of God. Verse 3. The presence of God. The Shekinah glory of God. In a new cart. And brought it out, on the, out of the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill. Uzzah and Ahio, the sons of Abinadab, were driving the new cart with the ark of God. And Ahio went in front of the ark. And David and all the house of Israel were dancing before the Lord with all their might, with songs and lyres and harps. They had the full band, okay? They had the full band with tambourines and castanets and cymbals. And when they came to the threshing floor of, floor of Nakon, Uzzah, one of the sons of Binadab that was driving the, the cart, reached out his hand to the ark of God and took hold of it. But the oxen shook it. They were stumbling. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah, and God struck him there because he reached out his hand to the ark and he died there before, beside the ark of God. And David was angry because the Lord had burst forth with an outburst upon Uzzah. So that place is called Perez, which is outburst, Uzzah, Uzzah, to this day. And verse 9, David was afraid of the Lord that day. It's not such a simple thing. It's, it's a hazardous thing. He was afraid of the Lord of God. Actually, uh, in another part, he says he was angry. He's angry with God. And he was afraid of the Lord that day. And he said, how can the ark of the Lord come into my care? It's too awesome. It's too frightening. The Lord is not this domesticated God that, that I can put in my pocket and, uh, and come to Him whenever I need to Him. He has to press His weight upon me in such an extent that I may feel crushed. I may feel crushed. How can this happen? So David was unwilling to take the ark of the Lord into his care in the city of David. Instead, David took it to the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite. And the ark of the Lord remained in the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite, for three months. And the Lord blessed Obed-Edom and all his household. And then it was told, King David, that the Lord had blessed the household of Obed-Edom and all that belongs to him because of the ark of God. And so David went and brought up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David, Jerusalem, with rejoicing. And when those who bore the ark of the Lord had gone six paces, he sacrificed an ox and an, a fatling, and David danced before the Lord. Now, let, let's have a look at this. They wanted to bring the, the, the ark of the, the presence of the Lord back. They did not consider the fact that this is the ark, the presence of God. God. The one who is beyond cognition. The one who is awesome beyond our own comfortability. 
I wonder whether the church doesn't experience so much the power of the Holy Spirit because our conception of the Holy Spirit is kind of like a jolly old mist, like a jolly old granddad who's kind of benign to us. But William Blake understood that he's more than that, right? How many of you in your kindergarten days memorized the poem, The the Tiger? Tiger, tiger, burning bright in the forest of the night. What immortal hand or eye dare frame thy fearful symmetry? Yeah? The tiger is the one who reigns on picnics. He's the one who messes up our our plans. He's the one who's awesome. And somehow the church has somehow domesticated God to someone who's safe, but largely kind of more of a psychological kind of a, a tool to make us feel more comfortable. But in Acts and in this place, what we are seeing is quite a different thing about the presence of God. He's not good, but he's good, but not in the sense that we can actually pocket him. He's good in such a way that he interrupts everything that we do. And I don't believe that God was malicious in breaking out against Uzzah, but Uzzah didn't understand that when they were carrying the ark of the Lord, you know, the Exodus had warned them, don't touch the covenant. Don't touch the ark of the covenant. Don't touch it. It may be just a little box, but if you touch it, you will die. And what has happening is that he was, he was coming, coming into and obtruding into something that was so much more dangerous and powerful that he didn't understand what he was doing. And God, by very virtue of his godness, by, his, by very virtue of his mass or whatever it is, was experienced. We cannot see the face of God and live. That's why Wesley says, then let me see the face of God and die. And so David was afraid because of the fact that God had, had broken out on, on Oza. And he knew that suddenly he was dealing with something far more profound, far more powerful, far more unhandleable from God's side. Our God today in the 21st century is too easy to handle. In fact, he's too easy to manipulate. And so because of that, he doesn't deliver. He doesn't do that much. He's used with a lot of our own kind of word, words and uh, kind of manipulation to try to help us to feel more comfortable and more accepted or more, more whatever it is. But God has, he's good, but he's good beyond all that. We can't understand his goodness until we come before him with some fear and trembling. So David was afraid of the Lord that day. And so what happens is that they go back and they try again. And they left the Ark of the Covenant in a priest or a Levite's house by the name of Obed-Edom. And there is a difference between the way in which the Ark of the, of the Covenant's presence in Obed-Edom's house was from the time when it was in Abinadab for 70 years. When it was in Abinadab's house, nothing happened. But when it was in Obed-Edom's house, it says, God blessed Obed-Edom. It's like almost everything that he did. The rabbis actually said that his wife was, preg- was, 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 was barren and he, she bore, they, were, they had riches, they had all kinds of things happening. That's, it's extra-biblical. But you can see there's a way in which the awesomeness of God relates to different people differently depending on their attitude towards God. Now let's have a look at what happened with Abinadab. Abinadab was also a priest, but he had two sons. And so when David wanted to bring the presence of God back, they did the most expedient thing. Let's get a new cart. Get a new cart and put the thing on the, on the thing. And Ahio, which his name means friendliness, and, uh, and Uzzah, which means strength, 
can imagine human strength and human friendliness, were driving the car. And the Ark of the Covenant was on the car. And what would happen was that as they drove the car, they actually found that the car went, went through a little bit of a, 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 an unstable period. And the Ark seemed to be tipping over. And immediately Uzzah put his hand to stop the Ark from co- co- coming down and fo- or falling down. And he was immediately struck down. It's actually really frightening. And then when David actually realized this, there was something that was missing in the way in which he was wanting the presence of God. He realized that as he looked at Exodus probably, he saw that the ark could only be carried on the shoulders and on the poles by priests. And so the next time he got it out of Obed-Edom's house, he didn't put it on a cart. He didn't depend upon the technology or the best way or the most convenient or expedient way of doing it. He let the weight of the ark press in upon him. Amen? There is something about about this that I feel we just need to pause on as we think about church. We've been talking about this last week. We're talking about the way in which God wants to weigh down upon us. Way down and, 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 and let us feel, get a feel of His presence. For that to happen, we cannot put it on a cart. We have to feel the weight of His presence upon us. We have to feel the inconvenience of His presence upon our lives. We have to feel the fact that again and again, He's going to be extremely irritating, extremely inconvenient for us, inexpedient for us because of the fact that He is God. He cannot be uh, related to except as God. In order for us as a church to experience the power of God, the the ability for words to not just be crafted by our own self, we have to experience God as an abrupt suddenly upon our lives. For that to happen, you have to actually carry him on the shoulders. Carry him on the shoulders. And there was something about Obed-Edom's, sorry, about Abinadab's sons that disturbs me. Disturbs me a little. Because they they carried no weight. And because they did not carry the weight of God's presence, they couldn't, didn't have a feel of God. They didn't have a feel of God. Keep your finger here, okay? I'm going to go back to Acts. And we'll go back to that place where all the people from other countries were, made, were congregating around the upper room. We saw in verse 12, all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? Others sneered and said, they are filled with new wine. It's almost as if the presence of God, when He presses in upon the church, tests us and causes us to have one of two reactions. The first reaction is not necessarily comfort, it is Perplexity. What does it mean that God is now God of my life and He's going to be powerful in my life? What does that mean for me? Is He going to squeeze me out of existence? Is He going to burden me so much that I'm going to be miserable? Is He going to take me through suffering to such an extent that He can do whatever He likes? And it causes all our fears to rise up, doesn't it? I believe they were perplexed, because of the, not because of the fact they were wondering what that was. They knew what that was. The rabbis had said, there's going to be a time when the Holy Spirit comes and, we will, and the Messianic age will come. When that time comes, the word of the Lord will come forth from His mountain and it will scatter and it will be seen and heard. And everybody will understand in any language what He was saying. The rabbi said that. And so when Peter later on says, this is that which the prophets had spoken of, he's talking about what we call the Pesha formula. The rabbis had talked about that. They were saying, there's going to come a time in which 
the, 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 there will be a reversal of the Tower of Babel. Remember Tower of Babel? When everybody who could speak one language was scattered and they couldn't understand each other. The rabbi said there will come a time in which in the messianic age, there will be a reversal of that when the Holy Spirit comes. And so they knew, they knew what they were talking about. They were not perplexed with saying, to, to, to say, to say what, what is, what's going on? No, they knew exactly what that was. They were perplexed because they were saying, does this mean that God has come into his house now and therefore we are called to account? They knew the weight. See, they were not experiencing some misty, charismatic, Holy Spirit thing. Called, woo, 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 woo. No, they were experiencing the weight of all their lives, how they have lived, and all God's expectations upon them, and all that, what it means to live with a God. And they were perplexed. And then there was another group of people who I don't believe really got a chance to really experience the fullness, the full weight of God's glory. And there is this other people, and their response was, what is this? The Galileans, they drank too much. And they sneered. They sneered. It's very dangerous for us to be casually contemptuous. We are casually contemptuous as a matter of habit. They were dismissive of the Galileans. They were dismissive of what they were doing. Unlike the Bereans who examined things properly, they were quick to just be contentious about it. But it's in a casual way, you see. They were not examining and saying, I don't think this is really true. I've examined it carefully. It's not true. This is all bunkum. No, they were casually contemptuous. They're casually contemptuous, just like Ahio and Uzzah and Abinadab were. They were casually contemptuous about things they didn't understand. It's a very dangerous thing to be casually contemptuous about that which you do not understand or that which comes in the form of some things that are more humble or less intellectual or less cool to you. And I want to speak about this because unless we get, get this out of our system, we are going to be forever missing out on very precious things because most of the time, the precious things will come in very humble and very despicable, even contemptuous packagings. Just like the Ark of the Covenant is like a three feet by two feet box. It's nothing. Can carry it. You can just carry it in a in a in a in a in a cart, and you can say the cart's worth more than the box. But there's something dangerous about that. We're dangerous because in our attitude towards one another in the church, we can be that way. We can be we can be casually contemptuous towards one another. You know why? Because you see, we are living in a, in an age of branding. We brand each other. We brand ourselves, and we reduce everybody's existence to a brand. But branding results in labeling as well. It becomes simplistic in our thinking. We don't examine things. So we name things by certain things that will cause us to be able to just push them on side, just, just feel comfortable about that. But this branding and labeling causes us to be casual about things. It makes us not examine things. It makes us not examine things. It makes us put labels on each, each other. Political labels, social labels, economic, educational labels upon them, cultural labels. We don't necessarily talk about it, but we put these labels upon people. We talk, them, talk about people as on the left or on the right. We talk about people as social justice warriors, or we talk, talk about them as, uh, as, a, as a conspiracy theorists. True? You use, we use these kinds of superficial language because it makes us feel more comfortable with ourselves so that we can casually, casually be contemptuous about one another. You can't do that in the church, you see. You can't do that with God because more often than not, God is going to use somebody who's not as smart as you to carry precious things. Just like he used the Okis from Miskogi, uh, the, the, the Gentile, the, 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 the Galilean, sorry, in that. 
And there's a certain way in which, as Paul ministered to the, to the Thessalonians, and then he, after that, the Thessalonians completely dismissed him. Then he came to the Bereans. The Bereans, Bereans didn't actually believe him yet. But Luke, in his Acts account, says, the Bereans were of a non-noble mind because they decided that they were going to examine for themselves what was there. So the Bereans were not like our contemporary culture. I'll tell you one thing. Our contemporary culture makes itself come to a point that it contracts to down to simple sources of information, simple, convenient, and lazy ways of thinking. We think in terms of clips. We think, think in terms of, 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 of pithy statements. But we don't enter into the reality and the weight, and the complexity of the presence of God or one another. It's very much easier to be casually contemptuous of things. But others sneered or they mocked because of that. And as a result of that, they missed out. Or maybe they didn't because Peter spoke then. He said, no, we're not drunk. We're not drunk. It's, it's still nine o'clock in the morning. And as a result of that, 33,000 uh, 3, people were struck to the heart. They were cut to the heart. See, that's the communication of God. It doesn't actually make you feel, okay, you're Christians. You're not like those people from those fuddy-duddy people who are always condemning people. He doesn't just do that. It doesn't make people feel comfortable just because of the fact that you're not like all those other people. It makes people feel uncomfortable because of the fact of not because of you, not because of Christians, but because of God. Because of God. He is supposed to make us feel a little bit uncomfortable because of the fact that we have to deal. Or else he's not God. He's a godlet. I remember when I was uh, here in America, just new in America, my family wanted to go and join another family to watch a baseball game. It was the Dodgers, right? Dodgers. Or as you say, Dodgers. And I was not really looking forward to that because by baseball to me, it's like, it's not, it doesn't seem that athletic, you know? It's like people whose bodies look, look just like mine. As <laughs> just as athletic as mine. Going there. And, and, I, and I went there and I, and I looked at the game and the game is so slow. It's so slow. You're just hitting a ball with a stick and a big ball as well it's not like a cricket ball a cricket ball is smaller cricket ball is harder cricket's much harder to, to play than, than, than baseball and so I despised it and then I began to look around and I saw that hey nobody is looking at the game they were having their hot dogs their peanuts and all that and they were enjoying each other and they were talking to each other and sometimes they look at the game and sometimes they would clap and all that. And was, there's this curious combination of social, and, social fun and social connection as well as watching a, a game that was relatively uh, and, and exciting. I've got to tell you, my, my youngest daughter, she's a swimmer, but her, her favorite game is baseball. I can't imagine why she would be interested in that because... When you go for a baseball game, correct me if I'm wrong, all you Americans, the game is not just, it's not the only thing, it's the whole thing. It's the way in which the guy who throws the peanuts is so accurate, it's everything, right? And I almost got the wrong picture I, 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 by my casual despising. I almost missed it. I would have gone back thinking how clever I am that I watch soccer, I watch cricket, I watch rugby, but I don't watch baseball. I would think in my casual contemptuousness that I'm richer than the Americans, when actually the Americans are much richer than I was. Does that make sense? Hello? I have this way of labeling people. When I was living in Malaysia, one of the things that we used 
as a as a as a phrase was Muslim fundamentalism, yeah, Muslim fundamentalists, because we have Muslim. I would call them, call them extremists in Malaysia. Malaysia is a Muslim country, and we know how they dress. We know how they talk. We know where they live. Mainly Malays, ethnic Malays. We Chinese don't go where they are, where they live. But one day I was driving my an old Volvo, and I decided to go past that village where nobody wanted to go. Who was of their same mind? Because these people were Muslim fundamentalists, and you can see how you can get trapped in shallow phrases. And my car decided that of all the time it was going to break down, it would break down while I'm driving through their their kampong or the village, and I could do nothing. The first thing I did was to seal my windows and try my darndest to get the car going and I couldn't I prayed and prayed and prayed and there's a group of people all dressed in characteristic costume okay they were rushing towards my car I said Lord come quickly Come, Lord Jesus, come. I was praying in tongues, praying in English, praying in every language I knew. And they came and they put their hands on the car. And they pushed my car. And they said, just try again, just try again. And ten of them pushed my car for such a long distance that at the end of it, my car ignited and we were, we, were, we, were, we were gone. I did not go off. I went back to thank them. My contemptuousness, my casual contemptuousness, the way in which I just labeled them a certain way was cured by that. Amen. So I want to put it to you that actually the problem with not experiencing the weight of God's glory is this certain casual contemptuousness. And it's not necessarily deeply felt. It's just that we dismiss things. We dismiss things that may be sources of deep information for us. We dismiss things because our society is, and the pace of our society is so such that we don't have time. We, but, our, but intellectually and spiritually, I think we are, we are reduced to very shallow examination of things. And I think this is going to be dangerous for us as a church. In people, we dismiss people, but especially we will dismiss God. And so David decides we're going to do it differently the priest would carry the weight and feel the weight of God's glory, the weight upon their shoulders. And it would, in a sense, dig into them. It was not that heavy, but it would dig into them. And then he said, we're going to do it this way. We'll walk six steps. Six is the number for man, okay, for humanity. And at the end of six steps, we'll offer a burnt offering to God. And after offering it to God, it's a symbol of our surrender to God, our worship to God, which is not just about singing and having all the band in, in, in involved, but it's worship and surrender completely to Him. Then He will guide our next six steps, the steps that we have to do as human beings. And so every portion of that journey to, the present, to, to, to Jerusalem, to the tent, would be human and divine, human surrender. And in that, they would experience not just a box going to Jerusalem, not just a symbol of it, not, the, not just the product of Christian work, but something of a suddenly from the other side. Amen? And it was in this that the church begins to experience God. Let's close in prayer.
I wonder whether you've had a longing for God. And perhaps you are saying in your heart, I want to get past the just the human conceptions of religious practice. I just want God. And I'm prepared to have God if it's really God. It is really you, Lord. I'm willing to surrender my life to you. If it is really authentically you. Because I've had my fill of Christianity as a religion. The conception of human beings. I want you, Lord. Once you stop blaming Christians... You're face to face with God. And this is the God who doesn't say, just believe. He's the God who says, test me. Try me. Prove me now. What do you need? And if I surrender to you my power, or rather I give to you my power and I, and I show myself real, you have to understand That in good faith, you have to give me your life. You can choose not to. But you cannot walk away from me and think, this is nothing. There are people who are here who long to experience the reality of God, or to experience God, and cut through all the human stuff. All the manipulation all the hankering to be as contemporary as we can. And although there, there's nothing wrong with being contemporary, I think we are eternal because of that. God is always on time. But you're looking for something deeper. You're not thinking about how you're going to be greater than everybody else. You're thinking, I just want to be a little cog in the machine in which God is at work. I just want to have a little spot where God's doing awesome things. I don't care whether I'm fantastic or I'm celebrated or not. I just want to be a little cog where I can be part of what God is doing. But it has to be God, not human being stuff. I want God. I will guarantee you that He will show Himself to you. For those of us who have been in church for a long time, I believe that God wants to manifest himself in his presence. And we've been talking about this, but I wonder whether God may be speaking to you about certain things that you have dismissed, people that you've dismissed. He's putting the church together and he's putting us together. But I wonder whether there are things that make us somehow find that the presence of God is always eluding us. We're constantly relegating the presence of God below things like convenience, expedience, time, our own schedule, our own realities of life. And we've not felt the weight of His presence. The first thing that happens when you give our lives to Him and you say, Lord, I want to feel the weight of what it means to be a disciple not my will, but thine be done, so to speak. He will begin to cause your hearing to suddenly be attuned. So Lord, we welcome you. Welcome you, Lord. Bless your name. We're just going to close, but before we do that, can we just sing the hymn have thine own way, Lord. I don't know why it just came back, came to my mind. And so why don't we just go ahead and just sing that in a sort of a way that's to him, not just meditating and upon the words on ourselves, but towards God.
Have thine own way. Have thine own way. Thou art the potter, I am the clay. Mold me and make me after thy will. While I am waiting, yielded and still. Can we sing that song? Okay, let's sing, let's sing it together. Daniel, got it? Have thine own way, Lord. Have thine own way. Thou art the porter. I am the Build me and make me after pray to the Lord. Lord, it is true that you are real and that reality will set us free. We come to you and offer ourselves for your molding. Come, O Lord, mold us as a church. Take away all our casual, despising, and bring us, Lord, fresh, humble, and new before you. Take away the jadedness that we all feel having been tricked and swindled and manipulated by those very labels and by those very people that we now can't stand. Come and heal us right now in Jesus' name. For every person who has been um yeah, casually despising. It's possible that it's because of some wound, some way in which you've been offended or been hurt. I want to invite you to just give it to the Lord right now. You've been offended by the other side. And because of that, you're very dismissive. But you're wanting to be healed. For those of you who have been find, finding that you've been hurt by God, perhaps, and because of that, you've uh, only related to religion rather than God. I want to invite you to just come directly to Him. Cut through all that. So we give ourselves to you, Lord. In Jesus' name. Amen.